federally employed women. Few has a new president. Well, maybe not quite so new now, but we're getting in touch with her. She's got ideas. Pamela Richards is also a supervisory investigative research analyst at the GAO, and she joins me now. Ms. Richards, good to have you with us. Good morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you this morning. And we know you're speaking from the few standpoint, not GAO, but in case people were curious about what you did, you know, in your daytime job. But you've been few president for a year now, so I'm sorry it took so long to get to you. What are the top issues you're thinking about these days in the few standpoint? Well, some of the challenges that we're looking at, one is what the future of work looks like, how to make a better government workforce. You know, when it comes to creating a better government workforce, few is a part of the solution and providing a four-pillar approach to help its members advance their careers through training, diversity, compliance, and legislative efforts. And when we began to look at the future of work, no one planned for a pandemic. We didn't know that a pandemic was coming. And so we're talking about the remote challenges that come with working in a remote environment for the last three years and now having to go back into the office, which is considered the future of work, looking at how this is going to affect our membership as it relates to some of the members became teachers, counselors, school bus drivers, caregivers, and things like that for their family members. And how do they now incorporate this back into their work life of having to go back in the office with the commute? So many things that once was pre-pandemic. Yes. And it's not that clear cut a picture like five days a week and you're in the office 10 days out of your pay period. But some agencies want four or five days out of the pay period. So that's half the time going in, half the time staying at home. And I imagine especially for women employees, because right or wrong, they tend to get the burden of worrying about the domestic issues. And so that's really complicated, isn't it? Because you don't have regularity anymore. Right. Absolutely. Generally, as you stated, the women are the glue to the family, as well as trying to have a career and taking care of the challenges that may come up with their children, with their loved ones that they're now taking care of. And, you know, in this DMV area, that commute back and forth, getting back into that routine of things pre-pandemic, because three years of being out, it's kind of tough to get back into it, like you stated. Yes, and uh, everyone's wondering, if nobody is in the office yet, why are the roads so jammed again? And that seems to be the cosmic mystery these days. I said the same thing Sunday traveling. I said, where is everybody going when... We're at home. There should be any traffic. <laughs> Nobody should be going north or south like this. You're totally right. All right. And just give us a little sense uh, back up here for a moment. How many people are in FEW? How far back does the organization go? And tell us about how you connect with one another. Well, I am happy to say that FEW is 55 years old as of May. We started in 1968 with 13 members. Our very first president, Ms. Adler Latimer, is still living, still with us, still providing knowledge and wisdom over the years of about this grassroots organization. We are celebrating our 54th national training program coming up in July, which I'll cover at a later time. But we are still here looking at the challenges that are facing our members, as well as providing training opportunities, both in person, some virtual, some social, some service-oriented all the activities that be a character and transferable skills. We have a number of webinars that we have been putting on as it relates to leadership and personal development. We are now moving back into an in-person national training program after three years of the virtual leadership summit. And then some of the chapters and regions are now having social meetups and they are continuing with community service. 
We're speaking with Pamela Richards. She's president of the Federally Employed Women's Group, uh, a year now into that presidency. And tell us more about the 54th training event in July. This is back in person, and where is it? And is it maybe hybrid also for those that don't want to travel? Well, it is not hybrid, I must say. We wanted to get a feel of how things would be in an in-person environment. We will be meeting in downtown Hilton Columbus Hotel. It's the host hotel, and we have a second hotel that is the Hyatt Regency that's just a small crosswalk away from the Hilton. And we'll be there July 9th through the 13th. We have over 110 classes slated for this week. It is our legislative theme this year where we're leveling up for success and envisioning a new level. And we will be there with our award ceremony that we recognize all of our members for their hard work as well as, as, well as our military who are pushing DEI and A efforts as well. And then we will have our mentoring graduation, which is another component of federally employed women, where we mentor, we have a cohort number two. We're successfully graduating cohort two and looking forward to welcoming cohort number three. So we're excited about this in-person event. And as we use this as a benchmark of what we can do in person, I am actually looking at providing a hybrid event because of the demand and the questions about a hybrid event. I'll be looking to plan one for 2024. Yeah, it's no trivial affair having things in person and online when it comes to setting up all the technology and everything. How many people do you expect to attend? We are currently sitting at right below 600 that will be attending. Our footprint covers 10 regions all across the United States, as well as we do have about 2,800 members in our organization at this time. All right. And tell us some more about the membership. Does it range from, say, non-managerial line employees up to the higher levels? And does it also include members, I think you mentioned this, of the military or military-employed uh, women? Yes, sir. So anyone can be a member of federally employed women. As long as you support the mission and vision of this organization, and we have a large range of from top-level senior executive services who also serve as our executive champions within our chapters, as well as all the way down to that GS 6 or 7. We have private sector personnel who are members of this organization, military, as well as contractors. And we do also have men. We don't leave our men out. We are a diverse and inclusive environment. Everyone has a place here in federally employed women. All right. And uh, what do the women tell you nowadays? What are especially people entering the federal workforce? Do you get the sense that maybe the opportunities, how do they compare, would you say, with the private sector in terms of acceptance as a woman and the ability to reach whatever your goals and talents permit you to reach without any kind of, you know, discriminatory impediment in the way? Better in government or industry? So some of the things that women have shared as far as our membership has shared with us is the challenge that is still there, that making the same amount of money as our male counterparts, breaking that glass ceiling, having a seat at the table. And one of the things that I ran on in my campaign is not only do I want to equip the women to have a seat at the table, but I also want them to own the tables that they sit at. And so through that uh, is providing the premier training that we provide through, and the webinars that we provide throughout the year and making sure that this training is impactful and intentional that will help them and have transferable skills that will allow them to apply that to their personal and professional lives. The standard, as well as coming back, you know, looking at reasonable accommodations after the pandemic, toxic workplace behaviors, and just women working together, being able to uh, navigate that, and how to get promoted, how to excel now in a semi-hybrid 
and wants virtual environments. So that is one of the major challenges is how do I excel when I don't have that see, touch and feel with my colleagues as well as my boss who I see every day? How do they know what I'm doing? Sure. And I imagine you get some good support moral support anyway from your agency because these types of activities take time and they must understand that this is important and it benefits them also, right? Absolutely. Our agencies are huge supporters. They're our allies. And we also partner with our federal women's program managers who are inside the agency where the agencies are required to have. And so we partner with them to find out the issues that are some are agency specific and some are not. And those that are agency specific, we try to assist them and provide resources for them. And then those things that affect women globally, we try to ensure that we are providing those resources to them as well. But our agencies are huge supporters. I can't thank them enough for supporting us throughout the year, especially during our national training program by sending their members and entrusting us to bring about that premier training experience for them. Pamela Richards is the president of Federally Employed Women. She's also a supervisory investigative research analyst at the GAO when she's not doing the few stuff. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you again for this opportunity. And all roads lead to Ohio. If you haven't registered, register, and I'll see you in July. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from 
formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by uh, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have 
you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.